I don't care if God ever shows me that this is for my good. I get to believe it. It's part of me. It's down in my toes. It's what the Bible says. Don't take that away from me. If, if God takes all, it takes everything, leave me the scriptures and don't let me ever doubt them. So he was the first person to ever open my eyes to the fact that I'm the same as anybody that he loves. His blood was shed for me just like anybody else. And there is no difference. And that's my first memory of Larry. Welcome to the Timeless Gospel Podcast. I'm your host, Faith Ann, and Larry Horton was my dad. The deepest connection I had with my dad was through his teaching of the gospel. My dad communicated grace more deeply and simply than most. These sermons came to be preserved through my dear Aunt Shirley, who, in the early 80s, requested that my dad's sermons be recorded on cassette tapes and mailed to her so that she could be edified from five states away. When Larry died and went home to be with the Lord in 2019, my Aunt Shirley came to the funeral and brought with her the very sermons this podcast was created to showcase. The remaining sermons were preached in the early 2000s at the church he pastored until he died. His children's prayer is that you will come to Christ through these sermons, or if you already are a Christian, be edified and comforted as so many were during his life. In episode 17 of The Timeless Gospel, Larry continues his study on the tabernacle, and then after the sermon ends, Daniel and I finish our discussion on verses that were taken out of context. The Timeless Gospel is now on YouTube. The name of the channel is called The Timeless Gospel. I encourage you to visit our channel and subscribe to it and leave any comments on any of the episodes that you've enjoyed so far. You can email me as well at thetimelessgospel at gmail.com. That's thetimelessgospel at gmail.com. In the show notes, I've linked our church's YouTube channel where you can hear Daniel preach as well as many other sermons from Larry, Daniel, and other teachers. Finally, at the end, I play Rock of Ages on the piano by mandolin. What's the secret to the Christian life? What is a good Christian? How can I uh, have the abundant Christian life? What are the principles that Christians should live by? How can I be more loving? All these different questions are answered right here. There are no steps to God. Uh, yes, we're saved. Yes, we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. But that's not our, our everyday walk, our everyday living in, on this land, on this planet, is at the labor. We thank God for the brazen altar. We thank God that we've been cleansed in the blood. But our daily meeting is as priests meeting Christ, the, the, the brazen, uh, the, the labor. And so we, we get all hung up in, in how to live the Christian life. And all, all concerned about we're not being good Christians. And all the time, God wants us to come here and watch rather than get involved in putting uh, hammers to those stones. Okay, then we come to the, the tabernacle proper. This was the, the courtyard here. Tab tabernacle proper. It's 15 feet by 45 feet. Back here, 30 feet in is the veil. There, and here is the door. Now, the significance of the door, the door was, was wide. It was huge. The door went from here to there. And it went from the bottom to the top. The front of the tabernacle was just one huge door. Let's read Exodus 26, 36. And you shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet. Again, last week we mentioned that 
And these colors are mentioned in this order 25 times uh, in this dialogue here. God, God commands uh, Moses to build this temple and he uses 25 times the exact same order of these colors for different parts of the tabernacle. And you shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. But put the work of the weaver on it. It's a little bit different than, than other places where we're building the, 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 uh, the veil or the, the, the curtains or uh, things like this. It shows a meticulous work. And you shall make five pillars of archaea for the screen and overlay them with gold. Their hooks are also being of gold. And you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So the door is, who goes in the door? Well, the high priest, true, but who had anyone besides the high priest? Can anyone besides the high priest go in here? All the priests can go in there. All the priests can go in there. So here we have the door signifying our acceptance, our fellowship with God. We are priests. We can go in here. The world cannot go in. The world cannot go through the door. Only we can go in. Once we've been through the gate, <laughs> uh, the gate's closer to the world. But we can, we can go in here. So that is significant. And the fact that the door represents uh, worship and works. The priests that went inside, they worked, didn't they? They had work to do inside. They didn't, they didn't go in and stand around. They had work to do. So the door, Christ is our door. Christ is our worship, and Christ is our works. Uh, our, our works are fulfilled in Christ. And our worship uh, starts and ends with Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, then we go to the veil itself. No, I don't want to go to the veil itself. we got to get to this furniture first. Here we had the the table of incense, or uh, but here we have a, a table with twelve cakes of bread on it. It's called sometimes table of showbread. Uh, and over here we have the the golden lampstand. Uh, the significance there is it's a lamp, not candle. Some of your Bibles has candle stands, and it's not candles at all. Let's don't get let's don't get Catholic here or Roman Catholic. Let's 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 remain Christian. Yeah. The bread on that table was that mammoth. The bread on the table is no, it's not. It was made. It was made by a uh, good question, but it was made by the by the priests. They baked the bread, which is significant. If this whole thing is is a picture of Christ, then what significant what significance would be having baked bread? Tribulation, fire, fire. Christ uh, suffered the wrath of God. Uh, good. That's that's the way we look at this. Now let's go on before we get to the veil. Here it is. Let's go to verse 23, chapter 25. And you shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long and one cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. And you shall make for it a rim of a handbreadth around it. And you shall make a gold border for the rim around it. And you shall make four gold rings for it and put rings on the four corners which are on its four feet. The rings shall be closed to the rim as holders of the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of archaea wood and overlay them with gold, so that with them the table may be carried. And you shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour libations. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence of the table before me at all times. The significance here I want to point out is it's a table. Now, why do we know about a table in Scripture? What is what is real significant term that we use with table? What do we say? What are we very familiar with in the church? Communion. 
table, uh, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. It's many times been called the Lord's table. And we can go to Corinthians and look at that, but we won't. Uh, it, it has to do with our communion with Christ. We go through the door, we worship Christ. We go through the door and, and, and we accept the works that he's done on our behalf. At the same time, uh, we, there we have communion with him. And all through Scripture, the table has always been one of, of, of communion and fellowship and friendship with one another. All through the, the, the Scriptures. Let's turn, if you will, to 2 Samuel for just a quick minute. 2 Samuel 9, are we there? Verse 1. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David had made a promise to Saul and to, or to Jonathan concerning Saul, his father. Uh, even though he was uh, treated David so badly for Jonathan's sake, he he would he would forever keep the house of Saul in order. He would bless, being the king, he would bless the descendants of Saul. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, "Are you Ziba?" And he said, "I am your servant." And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Verse 4, So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Mekar, the son of Emil, in Lodibar. So here we have a son of Jonathan crippled in both feet. He could not stand up. Can you imagine? Not... He did not stand it up at all. And everywhere he went, he had to scoot. He was a crooked man, full of crookedness. Verse 5, the king in, in, in Lodibar, I uh, don't have time, but there, was a, there were wars here, and, and this was a very, because of the wars and, and, and all the uh, famines, this was a very, very horrible place to live. Uh, it, there was just nothing there, just nothing but poor, poor, poor people. And of all the poorest of poor, we have... Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet in this terrible wasteland of Lodibar. Verse 5, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekar, the son of Emil, from Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he said, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely no show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. And he will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. David's showing, he could have said a lot of other things to him. He could have said, You can have all the land back. I'll make you a prince, whatever. But he was getting very intimate with him because of, of Jonathan, whom David loved. He said, You will sit at my table. You will eat with me. So that's the significance of the table. Christ is not only the table, but he is the bread also. But, but Christ is our substance. He's what keeps us day to day, nourishes us. Not only do we have fellowship because of the table, but we have strength because of the bread. And we know that he's the bread of life, right? There's 12 cakes, baked cakes, perforated, baked perforated cakes on the table before God at all, in the tabernacle at all times. In uh, stacks of six, there's been much, much said about the 12 the 12 cakes, wanting to bring Israel into it. And I will bring Israel into it to this point. See, everything in the tabernacle is Christ. We've got to keep that in, in our forehead, in forefront before us. Nothing is a type of anything else. Everything in there is Christ. So the 12 cakes cannot be Israel. The 12 cakes have, has got to be Christ. But because it's 12, I think it's showing the 12 tribes of Israel, showing Christ identifying with his chosen people. 
Christ is not the bread of life for anyone outside of the chosen people. So there again, we have Christ is the bread of life. Christ is the, the bread for his, for his people. Uh, if you even take it that far, and I don't even know that you should. That's as far, certainly as far as I'd go with it there. Okay. Now we have the, the, the lampstand. 30, verse 31. And this gets a little bit back to what Penny said earlier about, the, about baking. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered works. <laughs> Isn't that just beautiful? God didn't leave anything out. He's showing that, that the lampstand should be made out of hammered works. It's been beat upon. It's been beaten. Now, it goes on to talk about, they got a, a shekel of gold here. And this thing was pure gold. Pure gold. 125 pounds plus or minus of pure gold. And they had to be hammered and beat out in all these different ways. Had three different prongs on two sides. And then one at the top. It had bulbs on it. It was just real fine work. Can you imagine how long it would take someone to hammer all that out and make it one piece? Just one piece. Take a long time. Take a long time and it was worth a lot of money. Over, just before this, we have the golden calf. We all know about the golden calf, right? How was it made? It was expensive. It had to be a bunch of money, huh? That, that calf was expensive. How, how was it made? Cast. It was cast. They built a box, look, made it look like a calf, like a cow, and they boiled the, oil, uh, the, the gold, made, uh, made it uh, liquid, poured it in, into the box, and uh, probably within, I don't know, four, five, six hours, they had a golden calf to worship. Showing again the difference between God's ways and our ways. Our idol worship comes real easy. It comes real easy. Even though it can be expensive, it comes real easy. But God way, God's ways takes a long time. We've been told by others that Christ is the light of the world. You believe that? The Bible says Christ is the light of the world. Is that true? Can the world come in here? No. Only believers could come in here. Only the priests could come in here. Christ is not the light of the world. Christ said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's putting that verse in context. Christ is not the light of the world. But he is the light in the holy place. He is the light of the priest. He is our light. Okay, now we come to the veil. Let's read that. Verse 31 of chapter 26. And you shall make a veil. There's our colors again of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It should be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. All through here, it talks about skillful workmen whom God has given uh, wisdom. We have those today who are always uh, asking for a word of wisdom and, and asking God for wisdom to prophesy. All through this uh, passage here, it talks about God giving these people wisdom to do this work for them, to work with their hands. And you shall hang it on four pillars of Achaia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold and of four sockets of silver. First thing you notice about this, he didn't build, they didn't build it out, even in, the, even in the, the temple, they didn't build it out of concrete or bricks. They built it out of linen. So the first thing you think about, it's got to be temporary. It's a temporary thing. Even in the temple, now you can understand everything here had to be temporary because they had to move it every week or so. But in the temple, it was going to be there forever. And even there, they had the veil showing, first of all, that it's temporary. The thing that really kind of got to me a little bit, there's the mercy seat. Now, excluding Aaron, one day a year, Hebrews 10, let's turn, before I get to that, let's turn to Hebrews 10. I don't even have to guess at this. I, the Holy Spirit tells us, if I can find it. Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh okay the whole larry horton doesn't say this the holy spirit says that this is a type a picture of christ's flesh christ in the flesh okay and let's read that again isn't that beautiful since therefore brethren we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of jesus we are the priests that's going in here and we have confidence to go because of the blood of Christ by a new and living way we're not doing this physically we're not doing this practically we're doing this by faith by a new and that's the new and living way faith by a new and living way which inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh okay now the Holy Spirit tells us that this is a picture of Christ's flesh now I ask you outside of Aaron once a year and when, when he went in there that place is all covered with smoke anyway. He couldn't see anything anyway. But outside of that one time, we won't argue that point. All these folks that came in here, what did they see as far as the veil is concerned? They saw that side of the veil. God came down in all of his glory and seceded between the cherubims. Over 18 different scriptures in the Old Testament, the prophets are saying, and God came and sat between the cherubims. Where were the cherubims? On the mercy seat. And God came down in all of his glory and sat between the cherubims. What did God see? The other side of the veil. So God sees God sees the, the, the holy, godly Christ. Man sees man. Man see, saw the flesh. It's just it's just beautiful. This whole thing was covered with goat skin. Now we've already talked what did we say that the thing cost uh 20, I think it's twenty million six hundred thousand, wasn't it? Twenty million six hundred thousand dollars on the inside of this thing. This little tent out there in the wilderness, it was it was glory on the inside. But these uh, camel drivers out here looking down on it, they just saw a tent of goat skin, wondering what the fuss was all about. Christ in his flesh, uh, to, he was not he was not a beautiful man to look at. He was very common. There was nothing about his flesh that was spectacular. The veil separated. The, the veil was a restriction. You couldn't go past the veil. And it's Christ's flesh that is a restriction. We go to the Gospels. This is so important. We go to the Gospels and we go and we go uh, hear all kinds of different denominations and preachers. What do they preach? The second, the second most bought book outside of the Bible. Do you know the title of it? It's called In His Steps. That is the second most popular book ever written by any author ever. Only second to the Bible. And the, the subject of In His Steps is, what would Christ do if he were here? That's the subject. Maybe you're having, a, maybe you're depressed because of uh, some problem with, uh, I don't know, it doesn't matter. You're depressed, okay? Well, what would Christ do if he were here? Or maybe you're having trouble with your husband. Well, what would Christ do if he were here? That's the nature of this book. Now, this... This kept you from entering. It was a restriction. And it was it is Christ's flesh. So by the thousands, people go to the Gospels and try to live as Jesus lived. The flesh. And they're restricted from the worship in the Holy of Holies. They only see the one side. And they try to live as Jesus lived. And they try to obey what Jesus said rather than worship Jesus Christ. Let's turn for a quick minute to Matthew chapter 47. Give you more of what you already know. Let's go to... Uh, Chapter 27, start reading in verse uh, 47. 
And some of those were standing there when they heard it, began saying, This man is called Elisha. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. You don't think God's not serious about this business, the tabernacle? It tells us over in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit tells us that the veil is Christ's flesh. The minute that Christ is crucified on the cross, the veil is rent. The veil is ripped from top to bottom. We've all heard this, and I'm going to repeat it. Number one is, Christ was hanging between heaven and earth. And the veil is hanging between heaven and earth. It did not touch the ground. And we know that it was ripped from the top to the bottom, meaning that God had to do it. No one else could get up there to rip it down. And in the temple, when Christ died, the veil was rent from top to bottom. And lastly, it was ripped completely and totally, meaning complete access into the Holy of Holies. There was, the veil was gone. The veil was crucified on the cross. Don't thank me sacrilegious, but just bear with me because I want to beat this point home. One man, once a year, after he'd gone through all of the ceremonies, and he had on just exactly the right clothing, and the right undergarments, and the right outer garments, and he went through and, and, and all of this, and he went in here and he got everything just exactly right, just one time a year, he could go into the Holy of Holies. The day Christ died, think of a little dog any kind of sheep, any kind of animal, they can just run right in there. Any Gentile, they just go right through there. Whatever, the veil was rent. It was a nothing. All it was was a little box. It was nothing. It was unimportant. Because that's, that's what God had been building up to all this time. Is The, the, the veil was rent. That's, that's what he had in, in mind when Christ died on a cross. To, to allow total access into the glory of God. Now we get into the Holy of Holies. Let's look at verse 17, I suppose, of, uh, of chapter 10. I have two things to point out here, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll be through with this. Are we back over in Exodus now? Chapter 25 tells us about the ark. I want to show you. I want to look at something here, though. Let's, let's go back to verse 10. And they shall construct an ark of archaea wood, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide. And one and a half cubits high. That's the ark. Now let's go to the mercy seat. Verse 17. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits long. And one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim. But it didn't say how high to make it. God gives. He's been instructing us over and over and over. Like I said. Over ten chapters of instructions on how to build this thing. He tells us how to build the, the, the ark. Where the broken law. Where the law is. Gives you exactly what he wants there. Now he comes to the most important piece of the most important piece of furniture in the whole place. What the New Testament is built around, what the book of Romans is all about, what the New Testament's all about, the mercy seat, and he doesn't give us he doesn't give us dimensions on how high to make it. It's all gotta be out of one piece. Those people could have made all that out of one piece, could have been an eighth inch thick, and it could have been twenty miles thick. It wouldn't have mattered to God. They could have done whatever they wanted because he did not give them any instructions. Why not? Because preachers like me can't get up and say to people like you that God's the depth of God's grace and his mercy is one inch thick. Or the depth of God's mercy is 20 miles thick. We cannot say because there's no end to it. The depth of God's mercy is from hell to heaven. 
That's exactly how far it is, wherever heaven is. So God gives no dimensions on how thick to make this. But let's go on. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold and, and two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. How long and wide was the ark? Two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. So God does give us the dimensions for the width and the length of the mercy seat. It's not unlimited. It is not unlimited. It is limited. The depths of God's mercy is unlimited. But the width and the, the length of God's mercy is definitely limited. It's limited to cover that ark and nothing else. It doesn't cover anything else, just the ark. God's mercy seat will cover to the, from, he, from hell to heaven. There is no depth. There is no amount of words to explain the, the, the amount of God's mercy in its depth. English words just won't do the job. But you can certainly, you can certainly describe its, its width and its length. It only covers the broken law. It only covers that which God designed for it to cover. It is limited. Jesus Christ did not come to earth and make a provision whereby all could be saved. Jesus Christ came to earth to make certain that some would be saved. And that is the heart of the gospel. Now I want to show you one more thing, and I guess we're going to quit early today. 1 Samuel 6, 19. I hope we get this. I hope we don't just think this is something that happened four, five, six thousand years ago and doesn't have anything to do with us today, because it most certainly does. Uh, the Old Testament, I'll say this, I'll, I'll, I'll say this probably every Sunday. Every time I go to the Old Testament, I almost say it. Uh, is a picture of our spiritual life. It is a picture of our spiritual life. There's not one thing in the Old Testament that doesn't teach me something about my spiritual life. The Israelites had lost the ark, and, and the bad guys had it. In verse 19 of chapter 6, And he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men. Now, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of fathers. It's a lot of husbands. It's a lot of sons. These people were not uh, any different than the people we have today. Our friends and neighbors, you know, they're just people. People just been people since the world began. There's some good people in here as far as neighbors and things, I'm sure. There were some bad people in here. But they were just people. And God took it upon himself to kill 50,070 of them unmercifully just slaughtered them. Why? Because there is no make-believe with God. These things are important to God because they're real to God. There is no make-believe with God. God cannot cover sin from year to year except he, in his mind Christ had already died. We look at this and we say this is a picture of Christ and then we question one another, is that really the right picture? But with God there's no make-believe. This is Christ. 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 This and this and this is Christ. And that most certainly is Christ in God's mind. What did the mercy seat cover? The Ten Commandments. Let's read it again. And he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. What did they see? 
They saw the Ten Commandments. They saw the law. And so because of that, he struck down of all the people 50,070 men. I wonder if God would bless us by sending people. If we, next week I decided that I'm going to spend the next 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 years preaching and explaining and teaching what the Ten Commandments say and how to help you and motivate you to obey the Ten Commandments. Well, God bless that. Let's, let's start a seminar and we're going to learn how to live the Christian life. We're going to take the principles of the New Testament and we're going to put them into action. And I'm going to motivate you and I'm going to build you up and I'm going to, I'm going to get you to going and, and to where you can live the Christian life. Well, God bless that. I don't want to be known for a motivator. I don't want to be known for a moral man. I want to be known for one who worships Christ. That's, that's just all I care about. And if we were to in, 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 get into some kind of endeavor like that, like you see everywhere, people are worshiping almost the law of God. They're watering it down to where they can obey it, but nevertheless, they are obeying the law of God the best they can. And God killed 50,000 people for doing that. That's my point. God killed 50,000 people for just looking into the law. The law is just, holy, and good. There's not one thing wrong with the law. God gave it. What is wrong is when sin uh, deceives us through the, the power of the flesh that we can do it, that we can obey it, or that we even should. Let's not look at it. Look, Ark, let's, let's look at the mercy seat. The mercy seat with the blood. The mercy seat with the blood. That's where God dwells. That's where God dwells. He dwells in the middle of the cherubim where the blood is, is in the mercy seat. The mercy seat of pure gold. Let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 3 and we'll close. And what I just said about the 50,000 men, we don't want to get into that trap. We're going to spend the next several months showing how we can stay out of that trap. So good things are coming, guys. Good things are coming. Verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, propitiation in His blood through faith. And we'll look at that next week. Christ is our mercy seat. And that's what Paul's trying to show us right here. We Just exactly what I just read. We don't look into the ark. We don't try to be one of the 50,000 whom God killed. But rather we want to be to look upon the mercy seat. Look to Christ who is our propitiation. Christ is our sacrifice. Christ is our sanctifier. Christ is our light. Christ is our substance, our bread. Christ allows us to enter into the Holy of Holies, and Christ is our mercy seat. Christ is our where God dwells with us and where we dwell with Him. So as a teacher, the only thing you need to communicate is Christ to the people. And everything else take care of itself. That's all we need to know. We just need to know Christ. Amen. Father, we just pray that you will bring this home to our hearts. It seems so simple, and yet it's so important. We just pray that you'll continue to minister to us here. We thank you for our congregation and the ministry we have here. We thank you for those who come. 
And Father, we just pray at this time that you will convict each one of us of how fleshly we operate. That you'll show us how sinful we are in thinking we're so good. But rather let us understand that in the flesh dwelleth no good thing. That we might just look to your Son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation and our sanctification. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's move on to another one. Um, Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Yeah. Choose this day whom you will follow. This verse is taken out of context, um, severely out of context. And it's used, um, I've heard it used primarily as it relates to the argument between um, the free willers and the sovereign grace believers. And those that believe in free will and that salvation is uh, up to us, up to our choosing. Um, it's the old uh, Satan voted against you and God voted for you. And now it's up to you to uh, cast a deciding vote. Mm -hmm. And this verse in Joshua 24 is brought up um, to make that case. And... It, it's unfortunate um, because it's in its proper context, it, it won't work for that argument. Um, let me just read the two verses. Um, it's mainly verse 15 of Joshua 24, but I'll start in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Verse 15, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, Joshua is speaking to the Israelites there, and he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. And this verse is, um, used to say um, this is th this is an example of uh, the choice that's before Christians or bef before unbelievers rather um, bef before the choice is made to either believe in Jesus or not believe in Jesus um, and and this is not an example of that and the reason it's not is because the choice that's offered up to the people is between two, a choice between little g gods, mm. not not the God of the Bible. That's not the choice that's offered up to them. Um, if you if you think it's evil to serve the true God, if that's evil in your eyes, then go ahead and choose who you're going to serve. State it out loud. Um, be proud of it. If you want to serve these little g gods, serve those. If you want to serve these little g gods over here, serve those. But as for me and my household, we are going to serve the true and living God. And the fact that he's talking to Israelites would be the also a key takeaway there. Right. These are God's people anyway. Right. Um, if you if you saw a Christian serving uh, little G God could be anything today that that in which you are consumed, and you see that Christian consumed in, I don't know could be anything, um, gambling or uh, status, and you say, you can, and, and he's trying to get you to come along with him, 
you say, well, you can go, you can serve that God, but I'm not going down that path because I've taken on the identity of who I am, but not of my own doing. God has shown me who I am. Yep. That's just, uh, it's, it's not, it's not, that verse is not at all helpful to the Arminian's argument. Case. Okay. Uh, you want to do, um, the Jeremiah one, and then we'll go to the one, a couple of mine that I wanted to bring up. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. This is another verse that is um, sorely misused. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I think it's probably fair that um, a, a large portion of all of the graduation cards that are signed and given to the recent graduate probably quotes this verse. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because it's been taken out of his context. Um, it's as if the graduate is being told, um, God has a special plan for each special little individual and he knows the plans that he's got for you and, and it's to prosper you in your endeavors. So you've graduated and now you're going to go out into the world and um, because of the plans that God's got for you, uh, which is for your welfare and not for evil, um, you're going to prosper. You're going to prosper in all, all of your endeavors. And then the graduate gets out there and lives life and they think God's got this wonderful plan for me and it's going to be great. And they apply for 30 jobs and they get none of them. And then a week later, they're diagnosed with terminal cancer mm -hmm. and their mother dies and all of this calamity. And the, that graduate is going to be left thinking, wait a second, what happened to the graduation card that I was given? What happened to that verse? What happened to God's plan for me? Well, that's because this verse doesn't have anything to do with the recent graduate. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, this, this verse was spoken to all of God's people as a, as a group. They were in captivity. They were going to remain in captivity for quite a number of years. Um, and the promise um, of the, the plans for welfare and not for evil and um, to give them a, a future and a hope was ultimately aimed at their Messiah coming. It was aimed at the salvation and redemption that Christ brought in the incarnation, in the, in the life and death and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the hope for God's people. That's always been the hope for God's people. That's the plan that he has for God's people. Highlighting the importance of understanding the Old Testament types they were all pointing to Christ and give me a Christ, give me Christ over a Ferrari any day. Right. You know, it, it really deepens that verse when you look at it as Christ coming, not the good job and the happy life and the trial free right. Christian life. And so many of the apostles suffered immensely. And you look at their ministries and you wouldn't look at it at first glance that, that they were prospering, quote unquote, prospering. Right. But it's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ and redemption and salvation yeah. that is the pinnacle of, of all endeavors. Right. That promise is um, fulfilled for all of God's people 
to the max. Yeah, that's wonderful news. Right. Wonder, much, much better news than uh, the good job. Uh, I want I wanted to bring up, um, it kind of aligns a little bit with what we just said, that the tithe, uh, the tithe in Leviticus 27.30, all the tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. And so God is commanding the children of Israel to bring the first fruits. And then we've converted that somehow to 10%, probably very biblical. It, it would have been 10% of whatever they had. Mm-hmm. And then we've put these poor Christians under this law. 10%, man, 10%, do your part, give it to God. And I was talking to somebody recently, I can't remember who it was, and I'm like, is that gross or net? <laughs> that person, whoever it was, like, oh, it's gross. It's it's off the top. <laughs> like, man, you've got these people living paycheck to paycheck. Um, what terrible instruction to give a new Christian, young young family, two kids, paycheck to paycheck, and then make them feel like they're less than if they can't take 10% off the top and give it to God when the there was a system and there was a reason why that 10% was set aside in the Old Testament. Right, and it, it was under the Old Covenant. Right. It was under that Old Covenant law, and um, many Christians have brought that over into the New Covenant, and it's just not there. There's something. There's something that's being missed by the New Covenant believer in heartfelt giving, um, whatever that is, whether it's one percent or fifty percent or a hundred percent. There, there is something that it's being missed whenever. You're just simply checking the box. The box says um, 10% off the top. Okay, I brought my 10%, dropped it in the, into the plate, and the, the box is checked. There, there's no cheerfulness behind that. There's no genuineness behind that. Um, and so you're missing out. You, you got your check, your box checked, mm-hmm. but you're missing out on the new covenant blessing. Do you mean when you say new covenant blessing, meaning are privileged to help others in need. Exactly. Yeah, the, to, to be in the service for those in need the way our Lord was in service for those who are in need. You, you're just not going to get that by bringing your 10%. Yeah. And why why did the children why were the children of Israel instructed to give the tribe of Levi or to give that 10%? For well, a practical reason. Yes, and it, it had to do with the tribe of Levi was not given an inheritance in the land like um, the rest of the tribes. And um, they, they needed to be provided for. They needed to be fed. And so this was set aside um, so that the, the Levitical tribe, the priests, could serve the Lord and not be out in the North 40, t- tilling up the land. Especially in the um, tabernacle, I mean, in that economy where they were um, wandering the desert when they had the tabernacle, this was it was a very serious thing, like setting up the tabernacle and doing the rituals and doing all that What required a lot of uh, careful instru- uh, adherence to 
very strict laws and procedures. Mm-hmm. So you want your priest kind of top of his game. Game, right? You don't want him out tilling and. Well, and I think there was also a a reminder for the tither, whoever was bringing the tithe. There was a reminder that in giving that ten percent back to God and the service of God was a reminder that that everything they had, the other 90%, was God's also. Um, now, he would give it to them. He would, he would lend it to them for their use. But it was an admission on their part that um, all that I have belongs to God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, a, good, a, a, a good thing. But again, it was under that old covenant. And I think what we're given... In, in the new covenant is far greater than that. Who but the new covenant believer can say genuinely from their heart, yes, everything, everything that I have is because of God. Right, right. The world belongs to Christ and we're in Christ. So really what I have, if it can, you, it can, if it can be of use to you, to fellow believers, why wouldn't I want to? Amen share and the final thing i'll say about this is isn't it true that the that the levites were not allowed to do anything uh in addition to earn any additional income they they couldn't make side deals like you have pastors today that may like larry uh he was a preacher i mean he was a ceiling guy drywall guy but then he taught you wouldn't have any of that today if you were truly going to follow that covenant or that old old covenant they could all they could do would be to teach well and i've never done the work to um flesh this out from the old testament but i I read in donald gray barnhouse's commentary um on the book of romans that it's it's mistaken to think that the old covenant tithe was merely 10 percent Mm. Um, it, it was that there were different tithes for different reasons and at different times during the, the year and that added all up was more, uh, closer to 30%. Um, and so it's, it's a little, if we, if we want to, if we want to bring that old covenant law into the new covenant, there's a lot of things that need to change in the way we're doing things. Mm-hmm. It's, it is sad that, um. Christians get put under this and made to feel like they're not uh, doing their part. Um, Have you heard of people like the church says, we want a new building, so here's a pledge, like you sign something that you're pledging so much money? Yeah, yeah, I've I've known some uh, dear Christians that um, they they were required to um, sign a document at the beginning of each year as to how much um, the, the the church could expect from them, and if you were not meeting that pledge throughout the year, you you were talked to about that. Mm. Not only is are you, are you on unbiblical ground um, by treating it that way, by treating believers that way, um, but you are you are burdening the believers, um, and so not only are they uh, walking around with this weight all year long, thinking um, I, I need to work some overtime to make up for where I've fallen short here, but also there's no cheerfulness. Yes, 
Yes. There's no um, joy in the giving. Exactly. Larry just continued, hammered on the point that, you know, we've never had it so good. As Christians, we've never had it so good. And because he understood what what the Bible truly has for the Christian, mm-hmm. the, the Christian needs to hear the gospel too. Right. Okay, I, I'm going to do one more if that's okay. And then if you want to do any more, then that's good. But this one, this one gets my goat, Daniel. <laughs> <sighs> and I... Maybe because my dear mother was traumatized by this awful, horrible teaching of the end times, so much that when my mother, in my entire life, um, you could not talk about end times around her because it was almost like a PTSD because she was shown, I don't know if it was left behind it because, you know, she was, she's much older than me, but whatever her church showed her at a very young age. Uh, just scared the bejesus out of her. And she told me many times that if she came home after school and nobody was home, her first thought was, well, the rapture came and uh, I got left behind. And we certainly cannot get into Revelation here. But there is one, one very particular verse, or there's a concept of, that's prevalent in end times that is simply not, scriptural. So I have a couple of questions. I have about eight questions for you. The Antichrist, the word Antichrist is prevalent all throughout the Bible, right? No. Okay. Um, It's prevalent in the Old Testament? No. Is it prevalent in the New Testament? No. Well, okay. But it's prevalent in Revelation, right? No. Okay. Well, if it's not prevalent, is it at least mentioned in the Old Testament? No. Well, okay, that's Old Testament. Um, is it mentioned in Revelation? Surely in Revelation it's mentioned. It's not mentioned in Revelation. Not mentioned in Revelation. So we have four instances where the word Antichrist is mentioned, and yet we have devised this political figure uh, and this awful, awful theology where um, what the Lord has in store for the Christians is um, calamitous fear and an awful, awful future that it's n- that brings no good news to the Christian, and part of that is this antichrist that's been taken out of context. Right, very much out of context. That that's exact. In fact, the the context of where we find the word antichrist is just simply ignored. Um, it it's so egregious. But it's, it's done in an attempt to make that system of end times theology um, fit together nicely. You know, it is, a, it is a nice system, that dispensational, premillennial way of looking at the end times. And of, of course, we don't have the time to get into the nuts and bolts of end times theology. Um, but... We do not hold to that particular brand of end times teaching. Um, And so, you know, there's some unlearning uh, that, that I had to go through in order to start understanding end times. I struggled with end times basically my whole Christian life. 
um, and even before I was a Christian, that 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 future futuristic, fearful thing that's that's out ahead of us still um, was just in the air. I think it's it's almost been woven into the the American culture. Sure. Um, where you, you don't even have to be a Christian. You don't have to go to church, but you know about 666. You know about the mark of the beast. Um, you know about the great tribulation. You may not believe in any of that, but it's, it's part of our culture. And I think that's what you were referring to with Linda, your, your mom. She grew up with that and that system um, does create a lot of fear in a lot of Christians. Now you will have those that teach this system that will say that it doesn't have to create the fear and that we as Christians are, are not meant to be fearful. And that's all well and good, but the, the proof um, that it does create fear in the lives of Christians um, is in those lives and, and the way that they live life. This concept of a future antichrist that is really probably um, in most people's, people's minds, um, like you said, a political figure, um, it, it's just a, a complete misunderstanding of the word antichrist. And so if we put the word antichrist in its proper context, um, all of that confusion goes away. Now, there is a, a conflating of the beasts right. in Revelation. Um, think Revelation 13 um, and Antichrist. Now, without getting into the details of Revelation 13 and the beasts, whether or not that beast is future, um, we don't we don't even need to get into that. All we need to do is turn to the verses, the passages where the word Antichrist is found. And it's only found in two books of the Bible, 1 John and 2 John. That's it. It's found three times in 1 John. It's found once in 2 John. And so if we, if we, if we turn to that. Mm -hmm. It's uh, first, is it 1 John 2.18? First uh, John two eighteen says, "Little children, it is the last hour, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many, keyword there, are many, many, Antichrists have come, but we know that it is the last hour. Is that the right one in First John? That is the the first place it's mentioned in the Bible. First John two eighteen, mm -hmm. and uh, you pointed out as as you have heard that Antichrist is coming." So now, now when would that be? That would be when John was writing. Mm -hmm. That that would be in the days of his audience. While they were still living, John says, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The, that was referring to what is an actual antichrist. And and. John will def define for us what an Antichrist is. Does he do it in First John or in the Second? A little bit in both. Um, verse 22 of First John chapter 2, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This 
is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. This is, again, dealing with um, false teachers and what they were saying about or, or denying Jesus, and it was his deity. They were denying the deity of Christ. John is saying that it's the, the Antichrist is those, are, are those false teachers who are denying the deity of Christ. So Antichrist has more to do with a false religious teacher than it does a political figure. It has nothing to do with politics or... Um, What's happening in Israel now? No, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with those liars, those deceivers who deny that Jesus is the Christ. That's it. It's a false teacher. And many false teachers had gone out in John's day. I'm not denying that there aren't false teachers today. There are, of course, that deny that Jesus is the Christ. And so... Um, even now you could say biblically that, that there are many antichrists right now, but it's not that we're looking for this mega antichrist who's going to make all those other smaller antichrists look like Mickey Mouse. Mm -hmm. Nope. That's not what's being said. That's not what John, John never uses, um, the word antichrist and, and refers to Antichrist as some future thing, some future entity, singular entity. Um, it's, it's false teachers. Antichrist is false teaching. Um, again, in 1 John, a little bit further on in chapter 4, uh, we get the third instance of the word Antichrist. John says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of Antichrist. What is the spirit of Antichrist? Not confessing that Jesus is not from God or, or confessing that Jesus is not from God, saying that, that Jesus is not God. He's not God's son, um, which, you which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. There again, John makes it clear that Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, is already in the world in John's day. And it's false teaching. Mm -hmm. The last instance of the word Antichrist in all of the Bible is in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. John says again, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Or doesn't it say an Antichrist, not the or does yours say, I've got King James? I'm reading out of the ESV, and it says, Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Okay. Um, so that, that there is singular, but again, he's referring to anyone, anyone who brings this false teaching that Christ, that, that the Son of God was not come in the flesh. The incarnation did not happen. And... Um, Therefore, Jesus is not who he says he is. Now, anybody that brings that teaching is Antichrist. Very much so. I mean, it, it, it got Christ killed it, right. you know, for claiming to be deity. That's why the Jews put him to death. Right. Yep. Yeah, I was blown away when, when I first learned this. And you're, you're doing a Bible study, and 
So we're, we're part of that and uh, blown away that, that the Antichrist is not prevalent through Revelation, not even mentioned in Revelation. And man, what a, what a sad uh, thing that's come to be that we associate, we conflate the beast and the Antichrist. Right. And, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this, and I, I'm, for the listeners, we're not even asking you to convert. <laughs> we're not asking you to uh, put away your end-time theology altogether. We're just asking you to read what the Bible says yep. and to put the verse in context. And uh, I would encourage you to not have a spirit of fear. Um, Amen. We don't. That's not what the Lord has in store for us. So the Lord doesn't have in store for us judgment in the Christian life, um, measurement, uh, or or even lawlessness. He doesn't have that for us either. Right. And fear and burdensome giving. I mean, none of this is what the Lord has for us. Amen. Um, yeah. So Andrew Farley, the Naked Gospel, has some really good stuff. His ministry is all about grace in the Christian life, and he addresses the tithing issue. Uh, he addresses the First John one nine issue. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll link his book in the show notes. And I don't know what he how he feels about end times. I don't know. I'm not sure either. Yeah, and um, Larry, I think from what I got from him was that he just had no idea what the what it was. Well, he start he would he started out early in his life. Being a dispensationalist, having that um, futurist view of um, end times and prophecy, and um, uh, he was helped by many dispensational teachers, and um, a, a big part of that, a big part of why Larry was so strong on grace, but particularly grace in the Christian life, was because of all of the grace teaching that, that he learned from those dispensational teachers. And so he carried over their end times teaching as well until, um, as he matured as a Christian, started to see that there are problems in that system. There, there, there are, um, you, you really have to uh, do some biblical gymnastics to make that system fit with what the Bible says. It, that has been become a, a, a big part of my ministry is, is to not only unlearn all of those things, but help other people unlearn those things as well because of the fear that it brings um, to the Christian life. Um, we, we are not to live our Christian life in fear of this impending great tribulation. Um, anybody that's interested in that, anybody that would, that would offer up some time to, to sit and discuss the great tribulation, I'm going to spend time with that person. I want to spend time with that person, anybody that's interested in that, so that um, I can demonstrate for them from Scripture, the great tribulation has happened. Amen. 70 AD. Right. What would be some good resources for the listener to check out this uh, view of the end times? Uh Gary DeMar would certainly be a good author to read any, any books by Gary DeMar. Um, Doug Wilson is, uh, I've learned a lot from him on, on this. Um, what you're looking for is the, instead of the futurist approach to prophecy, you want to look for anybody that is teaching the preterist approach to prophecy. 
And all that means is that um, a prophecy that is viewed from the preterist position is a prophecy that has already taken place in our past. Now, there, there are those that are full preterists, um, which I do not count myself among. Um, I am what's called a partial preterist. And so I would take the position that very much most of the prophecy that we find in Scripture has already been fulfilled with just a little bit that remains yet to be, un, uh, to be fulfilled. And it was the people who were reading it, it was in their future but our past. Right. Yep. And so um, I, I would take much, much of Revelation. And um, when, it, when John was writing it, it was in their future. But as we are reading it now, it is in our past. Much of it. Much of it. Yep. And speaking of ministry, I did want to let you have an opportunity to uh, tell us where you can be found on YouTube um, if listeners want to listen to your sermons, they can find you. And where can they find you? Well, we have a YouTube channel called New Covenant Bible Church OKC. Uh, we are located in Oklahoma City. And um, Faith Ann has put a lot of work and effort into building the channel and uploading the sermons, not just um, of mine, but also of Larry Horton, um, who was my mentor, and also Charles Imes, who was one of the other teaching elders at New Covenant for many years until his, his death. Mm -hmm. and, um, and Dave, too, has been working on uh, getting all those uploaded, too. Um, and then we have one more. Um, we have a, another church member who teaches. Uh, his name's Bo, and so there, some of his sermons are on there, too. Bo Jenkins. And uh, my name's Daniel Montoya. And so you can find um, in, in all of our content um, uploaded regularly there at that YouTube channel. Well, thanks again. Okay, I have a funny Larry story, um, and then we'll end with a quote. Okay, so um, Larry had his tape player. It's, it's what he used to both record these sermons. And if, if you're under 25... <laughs> Tape player is about a portable tape player, about as big as a shoebox, with a speaker and a way to put what's called a tape in and <laughs> shut it, and then manually push a button, you know, analog style. Don't forget the nine pounds of batteries that you had to put in it. <laughs> what, D, triple D or yeah. something? Okay, so he, he loved to listen to his favorite pastor was Henry Mahan, Henry Mahan and he, we would get tapes delivered to our our house. He would listen to Mahan tapes. There's two places he listened to Mahan tapes on this portable. <laughs> He's already starting to laugh because he knows where this is going. Uh, on, in his bed and in the bathtub. So, and the only reason I know about the bathtub is because mom would tell me, oh, your dad's in there again. Oh, because what he would do is he would be in the bathtub and he put this tape player on the edge of the bathtub inches from water. I mean, every single time. And so we, I think it was John and I were talking one night and we started, we started hypothesizing about what would happen if that, 
if that tape recorder fell into the bathtub. And we just started talking, and you know, all, and we, I remember one of us said, you know, he could be dead in there. We wouldn't even know it. <laughs> and we're just talking, and mom's in the kitchen. She's not saying anything, and she's not saying anything. And then finally, she just, she leaves the kitchen. <laughs> she goes in the bathroom and she knocks on his door, you know, because we hadn't heard anything. <laughs> And she's like, Larry, <laughs> yeah, I'm here. Uh, came back and said, okay, well, you guys were talking. It got me a little scared. thought maybe Larry left the earth uh, listening to Mayhan, which is probably one of his favorite ways to go, actually, is right. if he left listening to Mayhan. So uh, Larry was studious and wise in biblical teaching. And then outside of church and biblical teaching, he was the eternal optimist, which sometimes made for... Uh, interesting, scary moments for those around him. Eternally optimistic that everything's going to work out just fine. I'm going to put this tape player here. It's not going to fall. Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anything else you want to add before I say the quote? No, go ahead. Oh, thanks again. Great discussion. Christians have nothing to be smug about. We are not righteous people trying to correct the unrighteous. Just one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. From R.C. Sproul. Amen. Amen. Great quote. Thank you for listening to the Timeless Gospel Podcast. 